from up here every now and then about how God loves the institutional church. That is, when, when Christians gather together as a congregation, God really loves that. And he can do some things in the context of a congregation that don't happen for individuals. And so I thought, you know what I really need to do is to put down some coherent thoughts about why it is that church matters, what, what we think of as church, that is gathering together as congregations all over the city, all over the nation, all over the world. Why does it matter? Now, there are not a lot of people here to, here to hear me this morning. But let me tell you something. Last time I checked on SoundCloud, we've had over 10,000 listens to our discussion points or sermons. Over 10,000. Now, a lot of them are in the United States. So there, there are people who are hungry to hear the message that God has given Ignite Life Church. So, pardon? Yes, I did. I did press record. No, no, I, I forgot last week, but, but I am recording this week and we'll, we'll edit it and it should be up on iTunes and, and SoundCloud, hopefully later, later today. But it was very interesting because during the week I, I started assembling uh, some material that I could use as a basis for, for my discussion point. Uh, yesterday I, I had board training, so I was away until about 1.30, it might have been even 2 o'clock by the time I got home. Then I, I sat down, I thought, right, now I need to get everything organised for, for today. And you know what? I haven't used any of that reference material because God suddenly opened up my eyes to a new way of understanding what this is all about. Now, I probably will use that material perhaps next week or a little bit down the track. But what I want to, what I want to do this morning is to explain why it is I believe the institutional church matters. Because there's a whole stream of thinking which is rife among Christians that actually the institutional church doesn't matter. And that what we do as individuals is the important thing. And you hear a lot of people saying, I don't need church, I don't need to go to church. But I actually believe you do. Now, of course, I've got a vested interest as a pastor in making sure that all the seats are full, right? So, so in a sense, what I have to say, at least initially, might not carry a lot of weight. But I really urge you to take what I'm saying and go and check the Scriptures to see if God isn't saying something about the church. We can go to the next page, thank you. Now, this, this is where it all starts, you know, with an understanding of two Greek words. One is ecclesia and the other is kuriakos. Now, ecclesia is the word which is generally translated as church. In the Bible, and that all actually started with the King James version of the Bible, because King James instructed those fifty people that he gathered together to do the translation. He told them to translate Ecclesia as church, right? Because he was the head of the the Church of England, and he wanted to make sure that the church got a look in. But that word Ecclesia literally means out. That E K K that means out. 
The rest of it means call. So it literally is out call. People who are called out or selected, but it also means assembly. Now, this is really quite interesting because I've listened to a lot of people and I've done a lot of reading. The main justification for individuals who are Christians to say, well, I'm not going to church, I don't need church, is if you look at the etymology of that Greek word, it never means building. If you look at the etymology, it always means people who are called out or people who are selected. But we now know, because of historical work that has been done, that even at the time that the New Testament was being written, that word was actually being used in the context of assembly. Now, it can be actually dangerous to build doctrine on the etymology of a word. Just to give you an example, what did the word gay mean up until about the middle of last century? It meant happy. What does it mean now? It generally refers to somebody who's homosexual. So if you do an etymological study of the word gay, you might conclude that we should understand gay to mean happy or full of joy. But in actual fact, in practice, it means something quite different. And this is the case with Ecclesia. It actually meant to be assembled together. Now that's beginning to sound like the church gathered together as part of the whole body of Jesus Christ. Now it is true, at the time the New Testament was written, the word, it never referred to building. Building is more like um, kuriakos, which means pertaining to or belonging to a Lord. And it's only actually used twice in the Bible. Once in relation to the Lord's Supper and once in relation to the Lord's Day. So this is not about the building, but it is about the assembly or the gathering together of, of Christians. So if you hear people saying Ecclesia actually means the people who are called out, that is generally based on the etymology of the word. But in fact, it's not based on the general usage of the word, even at the time the New Testament was being written. So that, that's just something to keep in mind. Okay? That's, that's worth keeping in mind. It actually matters a lot what the word meant at the time the New Testament was being written. So my first point is that Ecclesia, that word which is used 115 or so times in the New Testament, mostly it is actually translated as church in modern translations of the Bible. It is referring not just to people who are called out or selected, but people who gather together in assembly. 
Not only that, it was a secular word. It didn't have a specific Christian meaning. And uh, in in Roman times, uh, the people would be called out to go to a meeting to discuss something together. So so that was what was happening in the, the secular realm at that time. So if there was an important issue to be discussed, all the people who lived in a, in a city, they were called out by their leaders and they discussed or made decisions together. All right. So there's always been this notion of coming together in that Greek word. Now, the next thing I want to point out, and of course, I've done this many, many times, is that there are two aspects to the church. There is an individual aspect, but there's also this collective or, or group or gathered aspect. Now, this is a little bit of theology. It's not too tough, though. There is a significant reference to church as the individual in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, this is what we read. Don't you realise that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? When we become a Christian, when we make that decision to become followers of Jesus Christ, there is a spiritual transaction. Our spirit is regenerated. The Holy Spirit comes and essentially lives within us. That's the sense in which we as individuals are temples of the Holy Spirit. So everyone who's here today is an individual temple of the Holy Spirit. And and the the imagery there, the, the temple, remember in Old Testament times, the temple was where God dwelt. He dwelt in that holy of holies, the innermost place in the temple. That was God's dwelling place. But now we're living under a totally different jurisdiction under the new covenant. The Holy Spirit, Godhead, actually comes and lives within us. So individually, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And we hear this verse often, but here's another one which we don't hear anywhere nearly as often. And this refers to the church as a body corporate. This is from Ephesians 2, verses 20 to 22. I I love this. I've actually preached on this before, not here, but in another church. Together, we are his house, right? Together, we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. So at first The Apostle Paul, who wrote that letter to the Ephesians, he's making reference to the Jews, who also, of course, are brought into the New Covenant. And then he recognises that this all applies to the Gentiles, that is, everybody who's not Jewish at the same time. 
So what is it we're becoming? We're becoming a holy temple for the Lord. So this time, it's collectively. When we're gathered together, when we are part of an assembly, we become a holy temple for the Lord. So not only does God dwell in us by the Holy Spirit individually, we're individually temples of the Holy Spirit, but also God dwells in the body of Christ when we're gathered together. And that becomes his temple. In other words, his dwelling place. So there's this kind of two-dimensional presence of God in us as individuals, because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, but also in the church as the people gathered together. Now, the building doesn't matter, right? But we meet in the building because it's a lot warmer here than it is outside. So it's convenient for us to meet in the building, but it's not the building that is the church. It is the people gathered together where the body corporate, and that's where God dwells as well. Takes a little bit of getting your head around. So if your theology says, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and that's all, you've really only got half a theology. The other half is that which applies to us when we gather together, because that's also seen by God as his temple or his dwelling place. If we move on now to the next slide, you'll see another scripture which is often, often quoted. This is from Hebrews 10, verses 24 to 25. And and this, in a sense, gives us purpose for coming together. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So this seems a fairly direct statement, doesn't it? Do not neglect our meeting together. Why? Because when we come together, we're able to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And in fact, most of the time, good works do not happen because of what an individual does. Most of us don't have the resources to do good work. We can do some good works, like honouring our spouse and, and our kids and our boss and so on. They're good works. But good works in terms perhaps of, of helping the poor, the sick, the elderly, you know, say providing a food bank or something like that, we can't do it as individuals. It will only happen when we come together. And when we work together, we can um, underpin and undertake good works. Encourage one another. That's why we come together, to encourage one another. It's pretty tough out there. Many would say it's getting tougher. That's one of the reasons why there's a lot of interest among Christians in this um, anti-discrimination legislation that's working its way uh, through the parliament. 
Well, when it's tough out there, that's when we need to come together to encourage or to build up one another. Well, let me move on now and talk a little bit about some Old Testament precedents. This is good, Rob. Well, thank you. <laughs> I hope that was loud enough to go on the, on the recording. I think it was. <laughs> All right. So think a little bit about Israel. And, and, and in order to do this, you've really got to kind of think over the whole of the Pentateuch, you know, the books of the law. That sort of Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers and Leviticus, all that jazz, right? You forgot Genesis. Pardon? You forgot Genesis. No, Genesis isn't. Well, yeah, but there's not much law in it. But um, I did forget Genesis. No, I wasn't thinking of going back to Genesis this week. Oh, Helen. Oh, no, it's out of character, Helen. <laughs> but have a think. What do you know about the way in which God related to Israel? Now, nearly everything in the Old Testament in terms of God's relationship with Israel, it's corporate, not individual. Now, there's, there is individual stuff. God spoke individually to Abraham and to Jacob and to Isaac and to many others. But most of the Old Testament is about how God related to Israel corporately. Why did Israel assemble? Why did they come together? Well, there's at least four reasons. They came together to worship. Listen to this. This is one of the Ten Commandments. Leviticus 23 verse 3. You have six days each week for your ordinary work. But on the seventh day is a, sorry, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of complete rest. An official day for holy assembly. It is the Lord's Sabbath day and it must be observed wherever you live. So the Sabbath, when God established that seventh day as a day of rest, no work, it was a day for holy assembly. That is for Israel to come together. And actually, if you look at a whole bunch of other scripture, you can see that the reason for that, two reasons, to get close to God and to get close to one another. That was why. The Sabbath is not, it's not this kind of legalistic, hard legalistic thing. Those Ten Commandments were given to Israel after they came out of 400 years plus of slavery. It was a system by which they were actually set free. In this case, free from the drudgery of work. And on that special day each week, they did not have to work, but instead they gathered together to worship God, so to build relationship with him, but also to be together in fellowship. The second reason, the reading of scripture. Now there's a whole bunch of episodes in the Old Testament when Israel assembled, they came together for the reading of scripture. Now you need to bear in mind, most people couldn't read, and most people never had access to scriptures that were written down because of the laborious way of copying the scriptures. So it was only that special class of people, the scribes, who were able to copy scripture and it was very expensive, not like today. So in Exodus 24 verse 7, Israel gathered together at the foot of Mount Sinai to hear the word of God. 
Deuteronomy 31. There's an instruction there to read the law every seven years. I don't know whether I could remember it seven years, but this is what it said. Gather together, assemble together and listen to the law being read out. And that's the whole of the Pentateuch. That's a fair bit. Joshua 8, verses 34 to 35, before they entered the promised land, what did Joshua do? He read out the scriptures to the assembled people. 2 Kings 23, verses 1 to 2, Josiah, remember? King Josiah, he rejoiced because they found the scriptures that had been lost. And so they read the scriptures publicly. Israel was gathered together. They were assembled to hear the scriptures. Nehemiah chapter 8 verses 3 to 4 records how the scripture was read from a, what does it say? A wooden platform. Some wag said that was the first pulpit ever. A wooden platform so the reader was up high, obviously so their voice would carry, so the assembly could hear the scripture. So reading of scripture is another reason why Israel assembled together. The third reason is tithes and offerings. Now things are getting scary, right? Now I don't have time to go into tithes and offerings in great detail, but in fact most scholars would agree there are three tithes. So that's um, 10 plus 10 plus another 10 every three years, right? Because there was a tithe of the third year. The Levitical tithe or, or sacred tithe that's um, recorded in Numbers 18 verses 21 and 24. Now that tithe was, was given over to the Levites. They were the ones who looked after the temple. Now from their tithe, they had to tithe 10% to the priests. Now by law, the Levites were not allowed to own property. So they got the 10% in lieu of the right to own property. Okay? They, had to give, they were wholly given over to serving the Lord. And so that 10%, that particular tithe, the Levitical tithe or the sacred tithe that was set aside for them because they had no way of generating income, they were not allowed to own property. And as I said, they had to tithe 10% of that for the priests who weren't necessarily Levites, but they came down through a priestly family line. The second tithe was the tithe of feasts. Did you know that? You were supposed to set aside another 10%. So you and your whole household, which included not just your family, but all your slaves and servants and all your animals. You used to come down to the, the temple or in earlier times, the tabernacle, for the purpose of gathering together for feasts and festivals. And so you, you had to set aside another tithe for that for every year. And then the tithe of the third year, sorry, that's in Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 to 27. And then there's the so-called tithe of the third year in Deuteronomy 14, verses 28 and 29. And that was a tithe which was set aside to look after the poor. So the widows, the orphans, the sojourners or foreigners within your midst, because they couldn't own property either. So foreigners were not allowed to own property under the law. So 
they would often fall into into poverty. And so there was provision made for them. And uh, out of that tithe also, you, you, you supported the, the Levites in that, that third year as well. So often the tithes and offerings were associated with feasts. And, and if you lived a long way from the tabernacle or from the temple, you were to bring your whole household there. And that, that second tithe was used to pay for the holiday. Isn't that brilliant? <laughs> so that brings us to feasts and fellowship. And, and, and often, as I said, feasts and fellowship were tied up with those other three. So it wasn't very easy to kind of disentangle them from the other three. In Leviticus 23, verse 2, we see this. Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. So God's talking here to Moses. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, which you are to proclaim as official days for holy assembly, for coming together. These were the official festivals, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, atonement and tabernacles. They had a fair few public holidays back then, right? And the purpose was you gather together for fellowship, you feast, but also you build a relationship to God because along with the feasting, there was a process of sacrificing and of making offerings to the Lord. Okay, let's move on to the next exciting slide. So what was the purpose of all this stuff? It was to meet with God together, to express devotion to him with sacrifices and offerings and to respond to his word with faith and praise. And of course, fellowship with one another. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? Well, let's move on. What was it like in the early church. So we're moving on now to New Testament times. And we know that all of those laws about the feasts and the ceremonies and all the offerings and all that sort of stuff, we don't have to slavishly follow that anymore because our relationship with God doesn't come through all that law. It actually comes through Jesus Christ. But let's have a look at, at history. What about the first Christians? They were Jews, Right? So the earliest Christians, these are the ones we read about early on in the book of Acts. They met in the synagogue for teaching. It tells us that in the book of Acts. They used to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. That's where they got teaching. And also they used to stand up, those who had uh, the authority to do so, they used to stand up and they used to preach the gospel, which is why they were often eventually thrown out of the synagogue. But they met in the synagogue. And then they met in one another's homes where they took communion in remembrance of what Jesus had done and they had fellowship. So they often have meals together for the purpose of building those bonds of fellowship with one another. Now, some people say we, we should be doing that kind of thing again. And, and I've actually read an article where they say what we should be doing now, we should be going into the synagogues and, and the mosques and and the temples and preaching the gospel. Well, my guess is you'd get thrown out pretty quickly. But there was a there was a pattern there, wasn't there? 
the teaching, the hearing from the word, but also coming together. Communion, which has to do with sacrifice, the fact sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So when we move a little bit further on through the book of Acts and we, we start looking at all of those epistles, those letters to the early Gentile churches in the main, what do we see? We see here a church of the city. Why was it a church of the city? Probably because there weren't that many people. So a large city might support, say, the equivalent of one megachurch with a couple of thousand people in it. And, and, and associated with the church of the city were a number of officers, deacons, elders, pastors, apostles, bishops and evangelists. And, of course, we know, particularly in the epistles of Paul, that he spoke about the church as a body. The body is made up of different parts. The whole body can't survive without the parts. Each part has a different role to play. So the, that's a metaphor for the whole church made up of individual parts. And when you think about it, every church has its own little culture and it's, if you like, its personality. So some churches, if you like, are finger churches and some churches are toe churches and some churches are ear churches. You bring it all together, you have the beauty and the functionality of the whole body of Christ. And of course, you can read about that in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Now, some people say we should go back to that model where you appoint, you know, your deacons and elders and pastors and all over a whole city. Now, I understand that, but I actually don't really support that, that idea because there are too many Christians now, right? There's about 1.3 billion people who tick the box on Christian around the world today. On any Sunday in Australia, there's about 1.6 million people in church. And that number, by the way, has hardly changed for about 30 years. So although the census figures show fewer and fewer people ticking the box of one or other of the Christian denominations, based on surveys by the National Church Life Survey and by the McCrindle um, Research Organisation, Roughly the, the number of people going to church has hardly changed. And in fact, the actual percentage of Australians who are really committed to church hasn't changed much for at least three decades. It's too big, which is a good problem to have, isn't it? Even on the Gold Coast, the church is too big to fit, as it were, within the structure of just one institution or organisational church. So it makes a lot of sense to have congregations, particularly local congregations, meeting all over the city. How does it work today? Well, it works because we have local church congregations. Mostly they're part of a denomination, not all. Some of them are kind of independent, but most belong to one or other of the denominations. So we're part of Australian Christian churches, which is... Assemblies of God in Australia. And us pastors have to meet certain standards. And if we don't, 
then ACC will come in and they will sort it all out. They couldn't even replace the pastor. Right, so if you're not too happy with what I'm doing. No. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they're very good actually at, at ensuring that each of the individual congregations that makes up ACC is pastored appropriately and, and, and managed and worked appropriately. So that, this is how the church works today. We, we meet, so we, we have a whole lot of little assemblies, some bigger than others, and that's, that means we're all part of the body. And the whole body of Christ, of course, is all of these congregations spread all over the planet. It's beautiful, isn't it? It is beautiful. And um, I'm privileged to, to, to speak um, with, with leaders all over the world. I, I, I did a, a Zoom call last uh, Thursday night and um, one of the guys there was the, the Deputy President of Assemblies of God in Burkina Faso and he was talking about what they're doing over there by training their people up. It was actually in business's mission. Training their people up across a whole nation. And my heart leapt. This is part of the body of Christ at work. It's a beautiful thing. It could never happen if we thought of ourselves as being individual Christians. It could never, ever happen. So let's have a little look at what is the purpose of the contemporary congregation today. Well, guess what? It's not very different to what it was in Old Testament times. What do we do? We meet with God together. We express devotion to him. With sacrifices. In this case, it's a bit different to what it was in Old Testament times. We, we don't have to bring in an unblemished lamb and slit its throat and stick it on a big fire. Because Jesus has done all that, you see. Jesus was the last lamb ever to be sacrificed. So that, that whole um, sacrifice, the sacrificial aspect of the coming together or assembling of Israel, it's now represented when we take communion, when we take the bread, commemorating his broken body, broken so ours might be whole. When we take the juice or the wine, remembering the blood he shed, ushering in the new covenant. That's what we're doing. It's not so different to Israel. We also engage in offerings. And, and in these days, those offerings, probably 98% of them are by way of money. Many people do tithe um, 10% of, of, of their income and, and others go way beyond that and some less than that. And you know my view about generosity. Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He didn't say it had to be a certain percentage of income. He just said, be generous. But you see that, that that's equivalent to all those offerings that were made under, under the law. And also we respond to his word with faith and praise. What, what I'm doing right now is equivalent to having Israel gathered together and someone like Nehemiah or Joshua or Josiah reading the scriptures, 
That's what's happening. And there's a dynamic that happens in the context of the church when it's all gathered together. We respond to his word with faith and praise. And one other really important thing to bear in mind is that there was a, another purpose for the gathering together. A deep, deep prophetic purpose. And it is this. Both the Old Testament and New Testament gathering is a prophetic statement about the final gathering of the faithful. Read Revelation 7. Revelation 7 there talks about the Jews who will become Christian, they'll become Messianic. They will be part of that final gathering. The saints who have been, as we say, raptured before that period of tribulation, they will be part of that final gathering. And then there will be those who weren't Christian before that period of tribulation who become Christians during that period and who are persecuted because of their faith. They will be in that final gathering. When we gather together as one congregation, one local church congregation among hundreds, thousands, Tens of thousands. There are about 13,000 individual congregations in this nation. We're making a prophetic statement that we will be in that final gathering. Now, to be totally honest with you, I fear, I really fear for people who don't connect with their lo- a local church and who don't engage. I'm not 100% sure that you are not a Christian if you don't gather regularly. I, I don't know that the Bible says that. But I am convinced that you are not fully expressing your salvation and your relationship with God if you're not committed to being engaged with a local church. And, and, and by engagement, I don't just mean coming along. I mean actually entering into the worship, really listening and learning from the teaching and truly praising God. That's what I mean. So it's not just about you know, being on a roster. That's great. And that's what makes the building work, so to speak. That's not the essence of church. But I have a genuine fear for people who cannot make the effort to be regularly part of a local congregation. Because if you look at the whole history of God's relationship with his people it's not just individual that's only part of it he engages when we assemble and I I think it is so important that we understand that it doesn't mean you have to come to church every Sunday because if if you do that it becomes just 
legalistic religion. And we don't want any of that. We don't want any of that. I've said to you before, in America, the average person in a church goes once every six weeks. They just go when they've got nothing better else to do. I don't know what it is here in Australia, but I do have one more slide, which I think is quite interesting. Um, You don't have to read the whole of that, but really, this is the one that I think matters. About 45% of people in Australia, they say, yep, I'm Christian. Now, that proportion of Australians has been declining. It's actually been declining since the beginning of the 20th century. You go back and look at census data way back then, way back then, you know, nearly everybody was ticking the Christian box. So now it's down to about 45%. Now, about 15% of churchgoers, and that's usually defined as once a month or more often. Now, I don't really think that's engaging with church. That's cultural Christians do that. Cultural Christians turn up every now and then. These are the ones who are active practices, just 7% of the population. Now, it's about 15% in America. America is a more Christian nation in that sense than than is Australia. It's about 15% in America, 7% in Australia. It's still 1.6 million people or so. There's there's a lot of of us. There are more of us in church than go to the footy, if you want to make a comparison. (laughs) Right? Um, But I, I really think we have lost that understanding of how much God desires us to be the church gathered as well as the church scattered. And you know, one of our little little sayings here, it is not like church is the purpose of Sunday, is Monday. We want you to be equipped, filled up, ready for Monday when we're all scattered, workplaces, um, social uh, organisations, neighbourhoods, families, all of that. When we're here together and God ministers to us as an assembly, we're able to take some strength and some understanding and some motivation and some encouragement and the knowledge that people who love us are standing with us in prayer, we take that with us. And we can be far more effective as the church scattered. So I'll leave you with that to think about.